Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Warren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Warren, so I saw by your Instagram story that you spent the weekend at the pool. At a private pool. At a private pool. Very fancy. That might paint a little bit of the wrong picture, though. There was a pool, and you were in it, but it was not exactly like a pool for swimming laps. No, I spent the weekend with a friend out in Virginia, and she got these two incredible, they're called mini dips, and they're six feet wide in a circle, and they're about 18 inches deep, so we just got off the mini dips, and and every afternoon would sit out there and and have a drink and just kind of enjoy summer, so... You know, it was it was a really great weekend, and you know, when the pools are closed, you got to make do with what you got. That's perfect. I love it. Way to be creative. <laughs> but Virginia, I don't see you post Instagram stories as often. You know, I should probably post them more. Should might be the wrong word, but um, I could do it more. I I have uh, sort of a I guess an analogy for how I feel about Instagram stories, which is maybe kind of different. But so you know how like after a large holiday, like Christmas or Easter, it'll be like a month after and you're like cleaning up and putting things away and you find like leftover chocolate and you get excited and you're like, oh, I forgot I had this leftover chocolate. So you eat it and then you remember why it was leftover and you hadn't eaten it before because it's actually really not that good. So that's kind of how I feel about Instagram stories. (laughs) First off, I often forget about them and I get to make them and then I'll be doing something cool and I'm like, I should make an Instagram story. And then I put all this time and effort into it and I make it look cool. And then by the end of it, I'm like, that's actually really not that satisfying. Um, and so then I forget about it again for a while, but (laughs) it is really funny how people are like that. Cause some people I've literally been walking and, uh, it's a member of our comps department. I'm not going to name her, but we're literally walking down the street and she like stops and she's like, look at this flower. Isn't this a beautiful flower? And then she'll like do a photo shoot of the flower, which like good for her. Like she sees the world differently. I I will say I make probably like four or five Instagram stories a day of my cats because uh, they're so cute. And then I delete them because I'm like, people are going to think I'm a crazy cat lady. <laughs> so, yeah, I can see how, like, it kind of is hard. You want to live in the moment, um, but also where you live in the social media world of sharing stuff. So, you know, do whatever you want to do, Virginia, whatever you're, whatever's fun for you. I appreciate your moral support, Lauren. I really do. <laughs> and I will say, if I had a pet, I would probably make way more Instagram stories. So maybe it's good that I don't have a pet because like you say, yeah, you start to annoy people. (laughs) Literally right now, my cat, uh, one's under the bed, but the other one is behind me sleeping, but like in this like little bunny position where her little paws are like dangling in front and then her legs are extended in the back. That might be my story after we finish recording. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll look for it and I'll watch it. (laughs) All right. Okay. So let's push the pause button on the social media conversation because we have such a good show planned for today. Lauren, what do we have queued up? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Heritage Foundation Research Fellow Rachel Gresler about how police abuse can actually be confronted effectively. Plus, we share our colleague Rachel Del Judas's recent interview with conservative activist Star Parker about why America is not inherently racist. As always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. And to discuss, we welcome Kate Trinko back to the show for a conversation about our Problematic Woman's politically incorrect tweets. All right, let's get to it. 
We are joined by Heritage Foundation Research Fellow, Rachel Gresler. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So all across America, we are seeing calls to defund police departments. George Floyd was killed at the hands of an officer who was supposed to protect him. And now people are demanding that changes be made so that cases of police brutality cannot continue. You just published a piece entitled Confronting Police Abuse Requires Shifting Power from Police Unions. So let's just begin with the basics. We hear a lot about unions every day, and some of our listeners might even be part of a union, and you know, it's just a form that they filled out when they started a job. What is actually the point of a union, and how do they function? Sure. Thank you, Virginia. And I did just want to first start out this conversation by just expressing the respect and gratitude that I have for police officers. And, you know, the overwhelming majority of them are heroes who put their lives on the line protecting the communities in which they live and serve. And so I just want that to be understood first, that while there are some problems that need addressing, you know, just this respect and admiration for those people who are protecting us and keeping us safe. Absolutely. We we certainly echo that. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, so the police unions, you know, in many ways they function like other unions in negotiating things like compensation packages. But over the years, and it seems it started back in the 80s, they've been given more power over kind of the accountability and the discipline standards of these departments. And that has led to problems in the departments themselves being able to hold their officers accountable or to be able to invoke any discipline or even termination decisions because of contracts with the unions that are put in. And, you know, we heard Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey refer to the unions. He said this one nearly impenetrable barrier, which is the union contract and the way it's set up. And so we are seeing more and more is there calls for reform and certainly efforts have been made over the years, yet there's a lot of things standing in the way because of these union contracts. So really those those two things are linked pretty closely. And I, I don't think I had realized until I read your paper how closely police departments worked with unions, but it seems like there's there's a continuous ongoing relationship there. Yes, the unions have a lot of say in, you know, not just the compensation side, but also the way that the departments are run. And where it comes to be a problem is when you have contracts that include provisions that will obstruct discipline, you know, erase discipline records, insert elevated standards of review that end up shielding those rogue police officers. You know, in some cases, there are instances where Officers will be given 48 hours notice before they can be questioned. They might require the investigators to provide questions ahead of time to the officers who are accused of misconduct. They might allow them to amend their statements after they have seen a video or audio evidence. And so it's really giving them kind of some time to come up with their stories or to get them straight with others. Um, There's cases where they're banning civilian oversight you know, destroying past records of discipline, limiting the length of internal investigations. So there are all these provisions that aren't really related to the compensation and the things that we typically think of unions, you know, helping to negotiate or being in control of, but are really getting to the heart of accountability and discipline. So Rachel, what is the difference between public and private sector unions and why are private sector unions becoming less common while public sector unions are becoming more common? Well, one of the big differences is that the public sector unions don't really have the two sides at the table. You know, in the private sector, 
you have the management and you have the workers and the union representing the workers. And those are becoming a little bit, you know, less common, I think, because the value is not there as much anymore. They served a real purpose when unions were first established, you know, instituting safety measures, um, you know, just common protections, including basic wages that should be paid. But now over time, as the law has covered those and provided the things for workers that unions used to be necessary to have, there's been less unionization on the private sector side, yet the public sector, we do still see heavy rates of unionization there. And I think where it comes to be a problem is that, you know, taxpayers are really the other side here when we're talking about compensation provisions and they don't have a seat at the table. You know, and so the unions have a much stronger hold over these provisions when we look at the public sector. And actually, you know, FDR was opposed to public sector unions for that reason. So we know that Derek Chauvin, the officer who pressed his knee against George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes and who has now been charged with second degree murder, he had a number of complaints that had been filed against him as an officer. Is it possible that even if the police chief of the Minneapolis Police Department had wanted to fire Chauvin in the past, maybe uh, months ago, years ago, that he would not have been able to because of unions? Yes. You know, and some of those complaints might not be legitimate complaints. We've seen cases where, you know, drug dealers will file complaints to get a good and zealous police officer off the streets on the sidelines. But nevertheless, you know, complaints should be investigated and followed through on. And it definitely can be the case and has been in many instances where police chiefs will have multiple complaints and some of them will be credible. And they might even go so far as to not just discipline that officer, but to dismiss them. And yet they have been forced in instances to rehire them. So in 2017, the Washington Post published an article called Fired, Rehired. And they had collected the records from 37 large city police departments that had collectively fired 1,881 officers. And yet nearly one in four of those officers, a total of 451 of them, had appealed and the departments were forced to rehire them. You know, and so this creates a problem here. San Antonio Police Chief William McManus had actually been forced to reinstate one officer, not just once, but twice, and he explained that when you overturn these disciplinary and dismissal decisions for reasons other than just factual errors, you're undermining the chief's authority and you're ignoring their understanding of what serves the best interests of the community and the department. So what is it that kind of switched or moved along that pushed unions to have so much power and so much control over these police departments? It seems that there was a shift, um, you know, sometime around the 80s and, you know, one police chief described it as being during recession, you know, when the city wouldn't have enough money to give higher compensation and wages that instead, you know, they would give the union management rights in lieu of money. And, you know, that's when the trouble really started to um, build up there. And it wasn't just a one-time thing, but it's been incremental over the decades. And so, you know, year over year is you get these small provisions into contracts and then suddenly, you know, there's all these hoops there and it's very hard for the chiefs to be able to sustain the discipline that they need to. And so I think it's been this shift from what are the traditional things that you bargain for in union contracts to giving them really management rights and allowing them in some ways to operate the police departments by putting so many constraints and restrictions on what they can do 
that you really take the control out of the actual local law enforcement and those police chiefs and even the local and state lawmakers and put it into the hands of the union. Wow. I mean, it's just kind of nonsensical. It's really wild. Rachel, you wrote in your piece that despite widespread evidence that police unions play a role in police injustices, most reform efforts have failed to confront the unions as part of the problem. Why is this? You know, I'm not quite sure because you can weed through and find these instances, whether it's American Civil Liberties Union, um, you know, or groups, you know, Republican, Democrat on both sides of the aisle that have found out that this is a real problem. You know, academic studies as well, looking at collective bargaining rights, leading to about a 40 percent increase in violent incidents of misconduct among sheriff's offices or talking about how those union contracts, when they investigate the provisions of them, these attorneys looking at them saying that they really just frustrate the accountability officers and kind of hamstring them. Um, and yet, when you have things like President Barack Obama's task force on 21st century policing that is trying to tackle these problems, and yet they don't mention the unions as being a problem, all they mention them as is needing to have a seat at the table. But yet we've seen time and time over that when they are given a seat at the table, they actually take away from the accountability and the discipline that we're trying to get more of. And so I think this is one of the big issues, you know, Mayor Jacob Frey referred to the unions as the elephant in the room that needs to be discussed here. And so I hope that as all of this, you know, efforts are coming to bring about reform, that there will be a recognition that the unions have a significant role in this and that they need to be addressed and that they cannot be the ones that are in charge of running the departments and particularly be in charge of that accountability and discipline. It's frustrating because it seems like this could be one thing when everyone is so divided that could really bring people together and bring about change. It is. You know, it's really the key in there. No matter what is done kind of around the edges or whatever reform Congress at the federal level might implement or even at the state level, those will be for naught if you don't address what really seems to be the root of the problem that is in these unions. Even just looking at some of the proposals that have um, been put out there in the last couple of days, they're enacting reforms, doing something like creating a national registry of misconduct and complaints. That makes sense to be able to have that as um, public knowledge, whether it's widely public or at least, you know, within the policing community to know those things. But if the union prevents those misconduct claims from ever seeing the light of day, they're not going to go to the registry. And so in many instances, it can't just be that you implement these widespread policies that make sense if there are going to be places where the contract prohibits those policies from actually having any effect. And that's what's been shown in some cases where the federal government has stepped in in communities where there have been violations of civil rights. You know, and there's been, it's called issuing a consent decree and they come in and, you know, try to change some of these things. And yet it's been proven that the collective bargaining agreements present a roadblock to achieving the reforms that they actually set out in those consent decrees, just saying that the unions are watering down the measures that contradict their contracts, and then they'll even launch legal challenges, and those might not be successful, but nevertheless, they delay the implementation of them. And so it's really part of the big issue here that we need to be looking at, you know, whatever is done at the federal level, it, you really have to get down to those local department by department contracts and have certain 
whether it's the federal government setting, you know, standards that should be in there or certain provisions that shouldn't allowed to be allowed to be negotiated in union contracts, you know, at a minimum, those local and city officials should be renegotiating their contracts and taking away any of the provisions that are preventing them from being able to enforce accountability and discipline. So let's talk about two kind of different outcomes, two different scenarios. What would happen if police departments were actually defunded, as we're hearing calls for, versus what would happen if unions' power was drastically cut back and police chiefs truly held that, you know, hiring and firing power and really the power that they should hold as bosses over their officers? Yeah, well, first off, you know, if we defund the police forces themselves and we just have fewer police on the street, everybody is going to be less safe as a result of that. We need to still have protections and we need to ensure the safety of our communities. And the police, by and large, are the people who are out there and who are doing that. And so that's not a legitimate solution to just take money away from those police departments. But what is a legitimate solution is to look at the police unions themselves and to take away the control from them so that the departments can be the ones in charge and that they can hold people accountable when there are these instances of rogue police officers that they won't be able to remain in uniform and be the ones who are out on the streets. You know, if we want to have the good cops out there, then you need to have the departments being able to be in control of who's actually out there and not the unions um, putting their heavy hand in the role. So, Rachel, you know, even if we were to defund the police, those who are advocating would say, look at all this money that we're freeing up for other programs. How would defunding the police really affect city budgets? Are they a major percentage of what cities spend? You know, I think they're a significant percentage, and there are certainly ways that as states and local governments are looking at COVID-19 shortfalls, that you can collectively look at public employees as a whole, and there might be certain ways to make police departments and other public sector employee um, components and compensation more efficient. And so it's not to say that there's no savings that could potentially be had or efficiencies within the police department, but simply taking money away from them and limiting their size is not gonna be the way that we get it to the positive reforms and the culture change and the improved safety and protections that people want. You know, by and large, those changes, as I have said, need to come from the root problems and getting to the percentages themselves. You know, I don't know exactly what percent these police stations take, whether it's at the local or city state level. Um, but nevertheless, that we shouldn't be looking at just saving money. You have to factor in safety and what provisions would save, um, be able to improve the efficiency without losing, you know, those safety protections. So, are, Rachel, are you optimistic that we might see some of these reforms to police unions? Because it doesn't seem like many people are talking about this, but it seems like it's certainly the most most practical solution here. You know, on the one hand, I have seen some groups that we normally wouldn't think of as being critical of unions come out and address this and say that reform needs to be made at the union level. At the other hand, all the talk, you know, nationally and in the news seems to be just focusing on what reforms need to be um, implemented, you know, what chokehold should be prohibited or no-knock warrants being prohibited and kind of just getting around the edges but not actually addressing 
the root of the problem. And so I do hope that people will take a deeper dive into this to realize the role that the unions play and that you can do any reform that sounds good and that everybody will agree is a good thing, but it will not be effective if the unions aren't on board with that. Well, Rachel, I want to just take a second before we wrap up the interview and just kind of see how you are. For our listeners that don't know, Rachel is a problematic woman hero, a real American hero, and a mother of six. And we're now going on week 12 of quarantine. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well. And, you know, on the one hand, it has been nice to be able to spend more time at home with family. But, of course, it brings challenges. I've got four elementary-age kids and two who are not yet in school. Um, And so that has definitely been a new thing to confront homeschool with four kids getting on different schedules, having to find devices for them, which fortunately the school provided. Um, and just trying, my husband and I both trying to get work done at home when you have kids running around. But it is nice to see, you know, parts of society reopening, and we're a little behind the rest of the country here in the D.C. area. But nevertheless, I'm encouraged that, you know, at least my kids are getting to have certain friends that are willing to play outside more and, you know, a little bit more normalcy come back. (laughs) <laughs> That's great, Rachel. You're certainly one of our heroes here at Problematic Women. Don't know how you do everything that you do. It's very <laughs> impressive. Well, thank, but- <laughs> thank you. I did just want to say, too, is this issue, you know, thinking about with my children, and, and we don't talk a lot about the news with them, but they've nevertheless, through their classes, heard some things, and so we were forced to talk about this issue. But it is concerning, you know, having young kids to see the really hurtful and destructive portrayals of police officers that have been demonstrated by certain individuals and groups, and I I do worry that this will take younger generations' perceptions of the police or even cause children to fear the officers that they're supposed to count on, and we teach them, you know, call the police officer, walk up to him if you have a problem, they're there to protect you. And so I, I hope that out of all this, you know, we don't change a whole generation's perception of these people who truly are heroes who are protecting our safety. Yeah, no, Rachel, I think that's such a critical point to bring up that, you know, as as parents, as role models to young people, we, you know, we can't stop that conversation of discussing, no, that the police play such a critical role in our society, and we are so thankful for them. Um, and Rachel, I, I do just want to ask for people that want to learn more about this subject and are curious and want to do that deeper dive, could you point them towards any good resources? Well, there have been quite a few articles that I have found, you know, including academic ones. And in this area, particularly law journals, I have found to be helpful. I don't have one place to say to go, but certainly if if you Google the issue, um, you know, in police union contracts, you can find a lot of these studies that are out there that have really done a deep dive into looking at, you know, dozens of union contract provisions and finding what are the problematic components. You know you're confident about what you say when the answer is just Google it and I'll be right. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Rachel, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you. If you're feeling a little bit bored at home and are looking for more great information to keep you up to date on important issues, 
you should check out the Heritage Foundation webinars. Heritage can't host events in person right now, but we're still having events online almost every day. Tomorrow, there's actually a really interesting webinar on how colleges and universities can survive in a post-COVID-19 air. And I know Lauren has her calendar marked for next Tuesday's event discussing Florida's response to COVID-19 and what lessons the rest of the country can learn from the Sunshine State. You can find all the upcoming webinars by visiting the Heritage Foundation website and clicking on events. Our colleague and a good friend of the show, Rachel Del Judas, recently spoke with Star Parker, founder of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education and a conservative activist, about why America is not inherently racist. It was a really great conversation, and we wanted to share it with you all here today. Enjoy. We are joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Star Parker. She's the president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, and she's also a columnist for the Daily Signal. Star, thank you so much for being on the Daily Signal podcast. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you on. Really a pleasure. Well, in a recent column, you had written about how in 1992, you operated a small publishing business in Los Angeles, which was destroyed as a result of the riots that ensued after four police officers were acquitted of charges of excessive silence in the beating of Rodney King. So can you tell us how that had an impact on your life? Well, it changed my life because it propelled me into speaking out on behalf of culture on behalf of poverty, on behalf of race relations issues uh, that surround uh, those three buckets. Because up until that point, I was like most Americans, and in particular African Americans that are God-fearing, um, uh, church-going, uh, that basically stayed silent when it came to issues that hit the front page. But because of my background, I just felt compelled to speak out after the 92 Los Angeles riots, which is the turning point to propel me then to a national spotlight. See, I hadn't believed all the lies that I was hearing at that time during the riots, the lies of the left, I call them, um, when I was younger and coming of age, it's similar to what we're seeing happen in the lives of the youth that are now terrorizing our streets. I believe the lies that America was stacked against me, that it was inherently racist. I believe the lie that, you know, my problems were someone else's fault. I believe the lie that I, I did just didn't have any type of future in America. And as a result, I got lost, very lost in all types of activities, similar to what we saw over the last couple of weeks, criminal activity, drug activity, sexual activity. I was in and out of abortion clinic after clinic. Uh, and it wasn't until a Christian conversion that I changed my life. I, that I was on welfare when, I, when someone finally said, you know, you don't have to think about yourself uh, in terms that others have dictated. You don't have to think about yourself in terms of even though on race matters and what we're hearing today, that this that America's racist. They they didn't believe all of that and they kinda of told me that Christ didn't believe all of that. And um, you know, I had done so many things and now I'm three and a half years in welfare watching my life just spiral into a little dark hole. I'm you know, thankful that I didn't get caught for armed robbery and I did end up the rest of my life in jail. So I actually listened to them. I went to their church and I heard the gospel. I heard that I'm a unique individual made in Christ and that God loved me and he forgave me and he wasn't mad at me. And he had set a course for me. And as a result of that, I was able to change my life. I got a degree in marketing and international business. I started one and that's when the Los Angeles riots hit. 
And at that point, I was just a comfortable Christian, but I said, you know what? This is not fair, this narrative that so many are caught up in today when I heard the same story 20 years ago. And as a result of me not listening any longer, look at my life today. So I just started speaking out. And over time, after consulting on federal welfare reform in the 90s, I started the organization that I run here in Washington, D.C. today. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Star. Given what you experienced in 1992, what has your perspective been on the killing of George Floyd, as well as all the protests and riots we have seen since then? Well, I think that everyone is appalled. I mean, this is the first time that um, many of us have experienced watching in live time, in real time, uh, someone's life being taken from them. And I think that that panic and emotion within all of us would propel some to say, I've got to get out the streets. I've got to vent. I've got to go and protest. I've got to just do something. Uh, But, you know, the scripture is clear that a soft answer you know, it, it just, it, it keeps that wrath away. And what we need to do sometimes is just stop, pause, and allow for ourselves to get into that moment and say, what is it that I should be really thinking about for myself? The grief that each and every one of us uniquely experienced in watching that, that killing in real time was our own grief. And like any time you have grief, uh, you have to work it through yourself. Uh, Similar to, you know, if someone loses a child, well, the child that was lost, the parent's grief is very different from the grandparent's grief, which is very different from the sibling's grief. And I think as a nation, uh, we should be um, pretty impressed with ourselves to say that this was not about race. If, If it were about race, we would not have even thought about it, that it would not have impacted us so deeply. What we saw on the streets was more about power uh, because people were in a moment. They felt that they had to have an emotional vent. But we as a nation were in COVID-19. We were supposed to be shut down. So in my personal humble opinion, I felt that where we should have gone was to our face instead of to the streets to then create so much more damage against our fellow man. I wanted to ask, too, how is racism or race relations, given uh, everything you've seen from the time you were growing up to being a young adult to now today, how would you say it's evolved? And what is your perspective on it, uh, maybe when you're a younger person to now? My perspective is that we lost ourselves in the civil rights era after the Civil Rights Act was signed into law. Uh, We as a people should have done what Dr. King asked us to do in his I Have a Dream speech, and that was to go back into the communities and build. Because once the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, we should have no longer as a nation uh, thought about race uh, as a a special interest, thought about race uh, as a collective. Uh, Individually, of course, we're uniquely made, and there's some beauty in all of us, and and ethnicity uh, has that attributes itself. But when you think about what happened after King, after uh, the riots uh, of the 60s, we politicized race. The next thing you know, our nation was moving into only discovering race. The perception of racism became a business because we started uh, having affirmative action programs and racial preference programs. And you fast forward that to today, there's just very few, there, there are very few discussions that can take place without emphasizing race. So I think it has hurt us uh, as a nation to keep this heavy emphasis on special interests and ethnicity. Well, you recently held a virtual conference that gathered around 200 pastors to encourage the broadest possible intervention on behalf of national peace and reconciliation. I wanted to ask, what were your takeaways from that event? The humility of the pastors on the phone to say, we know that 
something is inherently wrong in our culture today, that this is not just race, what we're being told by the mainstream media and or the, the activists in the activist organizations. This is a spiritual problem that's rooted in a moral dilemma, and we need to be mindful of that. And so much prayer went forth, but also decisions to take action. And so as the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, Urban Cure, we are developing out a three-pronged program right now with those pastors, projects that we believe will be able to help turn the tide away from what we're hearing now, especially from the left, that they're going to go overboard um, with um, this moment in time. You know, they don't let a crisis go to waste, and yet this is a crisis. Uh, This was appalling uh, to watch lifetime uh, uh, killing, but we also know as a people that we are unique, and we need to keep our minds set on that. We do not need some of what they are saying in the Congress now that they're going to focus a lot more attention on ethnicity and race. I mean, it's embarrassing uh, what the governor of Kentucky said that now he's just going to kind of, what, line up all the blacks and give them free health care? Or is this a special line we all have to get in? I mean, let's not go that path. I think that the insistence that this is systemic racism should be questioned. We're talking about institutions that have a perception of racism, business that has been governing for the last 50 years. But I think that what we should learn from this moment in time is to get rid of those programs, not increase their dimensions and their size. We'll start in your email announcing this teleconference that you had with the pastors. Uh, You had said, I don't agree that our nation is racist. That mantra is the poison that entrenches resentment and division among us. The daily hunt for racism from top to bottom of our nation's institutions have institutionalized the perception of racism in the post-civil rights era. And I know you've hit on this briefly a little bit, but can you dive into this perspective a little bit more on your thoughts here and how to move forward? Yeah, let's think about what we're being asked to do now as a society because of this incident that we all will agree uh, should not have happened. Uh, We don't know all of the details. We will find out all of the details and justice will be served. This is not the 1950s uh, where you wonder if justice is going to be served. Justice will be served uh, in this particular instance because the apparatus of the state that, 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 that this incident occurred in, but as well as the American people are different people now. Um, so let's think about where we're being taken now in this time. Uh, we're having now the educational apparatus, our institution of education say, let's do books. Let's have each white person go out and just try to find a black friend. That, you know, this is offensive that we are going to, now let's think of ways that we can approach that black person about their life. <laughs> I really prefer that my grandchildren are thought of as unique individuals and not someone seeking them out to, because of their race to ask them questions that might be uh, embarrassing, that might have nothing to do with a separated and different culture. The law is clear. Our constitution is clear. Uh, and we as a people need to get to the place to where we know we're not colorblind, but where we're equal. Uh, and that, I think, has already occurred. When the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, I think that it offered us an opportunity as American people to be one, a pluribus unum. But what we know now is there are people who have vested interest in overturning America. They don't believe that America is inherently good. They don't believe what the Tocqueville said about America. They think America is inherently evil. And this founding country that had slaves has to pay forever. And so in that, uh, they're going to insist to 
rewrite America. Uh, we're hearing it, the rhetoric that we should no longer have uh, police forces. Leave us alone. I, I don't know what else to say, but just, just, just leave us alone. Leave, leave, leave race out of every question. Let's just move on as individual unique people and let friendships bond and let work relationships. You know, it's fascinating in work relationships. Uh, people, little two-year-olds, they work with anyone of any ethnicity if they're working on, on trying to get a truck to run up a, 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 a hill or they're playing in a playground. You know, if you're going to have racial insensitivities, they're, they're learned. And there's nothing that a society can do uh, to a parent that passes on uh, those types of, of, of scourges. You can't legislate morality. We can govern behavior through law, but you can't legislate morality. We're not going to purge our country of every racist cop. It's just not human nature to be able to say, I can be good all of the time and I can assure that no one will ever be a racist. So I think that the goal for America should be to undo all of the perception of racism business, including all the affirmative action and uh, racial preference programs. And then I think that we should just move on individually. Well, you also recently met with Vice President Mike Pence and other African-American leaders to discuss how the country can move forward following George Floyd's death. So is there anything from that meeting that you can share about insights that were discussed that you're excited about? Well, I think that um, Vice President Pence made it clear that the White House is alerted to uh, ensure that not only justice is served uh, for uh, for the family uh, of, of, of Mr. Floyd, uh, but also that justice is served for those that had their property violated and even loss of life during the uh, domestic terrorism that occurred uh, over the last week. Number one. Number two. Uh, the vice president assured us that. Uh, we're going to look now at some of the questions that stem from uh, the disparities in our uh, in our society uh, when it comes to our poor, because the, this White House has already uh, been moving toward equalizing the playing field, if you will, by focusing attention on the economy, uh, making sure that we reduce regulation and taxes so that the weakest link, the weakest communities will have flourishing. Uh, and there was some special attention placed there as well, um, because in the tax bill, a couple of senators put in a unique opportunity zone initiative that allowed for capital to flow into these hard hit zip codes so that business will come in and then jobs will be created and those communities will be turned around. And interestingly, it worked. It worked very, very successfully. Black unemployment rates were lower than ever uh, in our history. Family life was starting to develop because when people have, have money in their pocket, they can make decisions for their future. So we were already seeing uh, great health coming from uh, the leadership of the Trump administration. Unfortunately for COVID, it, um, it was an interruption. And now, you know, with um, the, the riots, uh, it's made it a little bit more difficult, and it will be a little bit more difficult for those communities to bounce back. But I'm, I'm confident that they will bounce back. And once someone has had a job, they will get another one. Star, would you have any advice for white Americans who are concerned about Mr. Floyd's death and are wondering if there's anything they can do to improve race relationships in America or something that they can do practically to help their communities? Well, I think to improve race relations in America, one thing that whites might want to consider is uh, helping those that are not 
getting the education that they need in our most distressed zip codes. And the way they can help is by fighting for money to follow children to the schools parents want. We need parental choice. We need educational options. African-American poor families are begging to get out of these government-funded, union-controlled schools. They're not serving their the needs of their children. So that's one place that a society can help. But when you talk about uh, what can white people do to blacks, the last thing we need to do is start looking only at ethnicity and saying, because you're black, I'm going to come up with you and I'm going to make a, try to make a relationship. Most Americans are cordial to their neighbors. They work across aisles racially and ethnically on projects at work and other places. So we need to not buy into the narrative that we're hearing from on high now and even on the Congress and every kind of public place that America is systemically racist. This is not true. So what we have to do is not have whites do that. If they want to help the Floyd family, help them. You know, we saw that the family is in need. They weren't expecting a death. And often when you're not expecting a death of a loved one, you might have to pass the hat. So if someone really feels in themselves that they need to do something, then do something. But this is not corporate action. The grief is your own. The grief is our own. This is not something that we do collectively because what we're doing collectively doesn't work. We see that in government programs. This doesn't work when we have think that we can do a one-size-fits-all to build race relationships. No, if you have friends of other ethnicities, then build a friendship. But let's not make it a science. Friendships and relationships are art, and I think that we should embrace that. Well, Star, what a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining the Daily Signal podcast. We appreciate having you. Well, I appreciate being with you. Thank you. Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. Now, it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to JK Rowling. Wow, that's that's surprising, Virginia. I know, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so if you've not heard, Harry Potter author JK Rowling has been called out on Twitter for believing in biological sexes. That's right. Rowling believes that sexes exist and that women are women and men are men, and the radical left is appalled. So Katrina Trinko, our colleague at The Daily Signal, is here to help us break all this down. Kate and Lauren, it's frankly just, it's really sad that we're having to have this conversation right now, a conversation that even our parents probably would not have believed we would be having when they were our age. But here we go. All right, so at the end of May, DVEX published an opinion piece entitled Creating a More Equal Post-COVID-19 World for People Who Menstruate. Last week, Rowling tweeted the piece with the comment, People who menstruate. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Womben, wimpund, mud is <laughs> too good. Uh, but woke Twitter, they were not pleased or amused. Rowling immediately received backlash with people calling her anti-trans. Rowling has not apologized for her tweet, though, but instead stated her views even more clearly on Twitter, writing in a thread, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally 
is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. And she added, I respect every trans person's right to live any way that feels authentic and comfortable to them. I'd march with you if you were discriminated against on the basis of being trans. At the same time, my life has been shaped by being female. I do not believe it's hateful to say so. Glad the LGBTQ activist group responded to Rowling in a statement per Variety saying, quote, J.K. Rowling, whose books gave kids hope that they could work together to create a better world, has now aligned herself with an anti-science ideology that denies the basic humanity of people who are transgender. Trans men, trans women, and non-binary people are not a threat, and to imply otherwise puts trans people at risk. Now is the time for allies who know and support trans people to speak up and support their fundamental right to be treated equally and fairly. So Kate, Glad here is accusing Rowling of Quote, aligning herself with anti-science ideology that denies the basic humanity of people who are transgender and implied that Rowling was saying that transgender people should not be treated equally and fairly. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, my thoughts are that, you know, as usual, I never planned to publicly discuss periods, but here we go again. <laughs> so, yeah, on your first point, it really is nauseating to hear the term anti-science ideology. I don't want to get graphic here, but <laughs> the chromosomes are real. And no amount of surgery will change that. You can certainly remove and add body parts to um, different degrees of operational abilities, to put it delicately, but that you cannot change chromosomes. You cannot change DNA. There are, um, you know, I mean, there's a whole nother school of thought about whether gender is what you think, but it uh, that seems very esoteric out there. And I think if you look at the science, the reality is for better or worse, you are born a certain sex. And again, even with modifications, your body remains that sex in very profound and um, biologically true ways. And that is, you know, I mean, that's just the facts. I'm sorry, woke people. To your second point, yeah, saying that people couldn't be treated equally and fairly. Um, let's turn that on its head. I thought, you know, Rowling went to great pains to indicate that she is someone who supports transgender people. I don't think she and I would agree on the right way of handling this, to be honest. I think she's probably far more liberal on this issue than I am. So it sounds like she wants to treat them all, but she's also saying we can't pretend that it's exactly the same. And I think that's really important. And that's something that you see feminists talking about and, I mean, look, growing up female is different than growing up male. They just are. And obviously, periods are one of the biggest differences in terms of biological realities between the two sexes. And I think, you know, Rowling used the word erased. And I think that's so important that here we have it, that women can't tell honestly with their own experiences because it might offend someone who has gone from male to female. And even though this person now believes that they are female, they don't menstruate because there really isn't a way right now to create that unless you're born female. And um, that's, that's, 
I just, <laughs> I'm not ranting very well because I don't even have words because it's just like, <laughs> what do you mean you can't tell women that having a period is part of their lives? I think I speak for many women when I say that we would maybe prefer that periods weren't part of our lives, <laughs> but for better or worse, they are. And, you know, they shape you. They do affect you. Yeah. No, Kate, I, I feel like the the biggest well, one one of the biggest things here that Rowling really hits on, like you said, is uh, her comment about the experiences of women being erased. The exact quote is, if sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. That's really powerful. And frankly, I feel I'm just really proud of Rowling for actually stepping up and saying this, because I think everyone's thinking it. Uh and concerned about it as we talk more and more about the transgender movement. And it feels almost like, you know, this classic feminist rhetoric that we've heard for so long and with the women's movement is now almost becoming antiquated. And it, it's really bizarre to watch and see um, just how the kind of the language has so quickly shifted and how the left has so quickly embraced that really without any logic attached to it. Uh, so pretty, pretty impressed with, with Rowling for actually not just making the statement, but then also sticking to it and not quickly apologizing like we've often seen in the past. Well, I don't think this is a one-off kind of Rowling's the only person who thinks like this, uh, on the left. Uh, have you guys ever heard of the term a TERF, T-E-R-F? No. Yeah, of course. Trans exclusionary yeah. radical oh, right. feminist. Yeah. There so, we go. you know, and that that's it's kind of like used as a, you know, as a bad bad name to call somebody now. It's like, "Oh, you're a turf. You you you're not really inclusive. You know, you're only inclusive of you." And um, you know, I think of a, a woman we interviewed a couple of years ago on the Daily Signal, Miriam Ben Shalom. Um, you know, she was key in being one of the first out lesbians in in the armed services. You know, for for better or for worse, with whatever you know, I might believe, or a lot of our listeners might believe, but she really pushed gay rights in this this country, um, and in their movement. And now they're kind of like throwing her off to the side because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to march with the their exact policy agreement every time. And it shows that it's not really about inclusivity; it's about just following whatever's cool, you know, whatever makes you feel good today, and whatever kind of we can post, whatever rainbow flag. Um, you know, it, and it, there's, it's not backed by science and it's not backed by history. And, and, and I think that's why it frustrates us so much is that we can have good faith conversations about, you know, how do we treat people who feel like they're trans in our society? And, you know, what do we do about gay rights and making sure that people aren't being discriminated against, but we can't because the goalpost is always shifting and, you know, and it would, if you don't agree with them, you're wrong. You know, there, there's no, they don't leave room for discussion. Um, and I, I think another funny little wrinkle of this, um, I, I was ranting about it before we even recorded, but Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter in, in the movies very famously, um, you know, you could see him from, he's a little boy all the way up to a man. He came out and disagreed with JK Rowling publicly. And we're now at a point in feminism where if a woman says a woman is a woman, she's wrong and she's trans exclusionary and and she is you know hateful and a bad feminist but if a man comes and tells her what to say then that's fine and he's doing the good thing and it's just it's turning feminism completely on its head and just it distracts us from what's important and i think that's why it's 
it's it's kind of funny. You can kind of chuckle at it when you see it on Twitter, but it, it's so incredibly frustrating because all we want is for women to be treated equally and women to have, you know, the same rights as men. And, you know, there are we do look at the Me Too movement and there are places where women still in today's society do have issues that we need to talk about and clear up. And, and you know, like Kate mentioned, like periods and access to tampons, some women, that's that's a major issue in their lives. You know, you look at homeless women, um, you know, that they what do they do when they don't have access to public restrooms? But we're not having these conversations because it's all about how tolerant you are or are you using the right nouns and adjectives. So. Yeah, and I would say I found the Daniel Radcliffe insertion of himself as the woke hero uh, particularly annoying. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the beginning of the Harry Potter books, which I really want to pick up again this week, it's been a while <laughs> since I've read them. Um, but, you know, J.K. Rowling started writing the first one when she was a single mom, um, I believe, in the poverty line or at least close to it. Um, and she was just writing them, you know, in coffee shops and trying to make a go of it as a single mom. And, you know, here is this woman who, you know, created this universe that has brought enormous amounts of joy and pleasure to so many people. And this kid who, you know, really got every, I mean, Daniel Radcliffe is only famous because of Harry Potter. And, you know, it just struck me as just very ungracious to respond like this. Um, but then I also wanted to note, um, I, um, there is a forum on Reddit called Gender Critical that I sometimes read. And it's really fascinating. And it's mainly hardcore liberal feminists. And um, it seems to be a lot of lesbians. And their whole thing, though, is they refuse to really buy into the transgender agenda. And they they were posting a ton about this J.K. Rowling thing. And what they kept saying was they were afraid to even like her tweet or if they were brave enough to like it, they were afraid to retweet it because, and I, I don't mean to mock them at all, they were genuinely concerned, and I think with good reason, about employment being affected, about relationships with friends and family being affected. And a lot of them in this forum, they just say like this is the only place where I feel like I can speak honestly. Um, they're not using real names, um, at least as far as I can tell, because there would be so much pushback if I was transparent about my feelings. And I think that just really goes to show like one, I think J.K. Rowling, yeah, she's like a gazillionaire and she's famous, but I also think... Um, she's showing enormous courage in not apologizing for this tweet. But secondly, like, yeah, back to the larger point, what kind of world do we live in where women feel like they have to be silent about what it's like to be a woman? Because that's not tolerated right now. Well, I think that that level of intolerance has created such fear, like you say, Kate, to where, you know, the majority of the population, I really think does agree with Rowling and with the views of you know, those those other individuals that you mentioned on Reddit to where, you know, they still hold to a woman's a woman and a man's a man. But people are just so terrified to actually say that because there are concerns about the repercussions of simply what, you know, making that simple statement would actually mean. Well, I'm so happy that J.K. Rowling stood up. You know, she's typically pretty liberal. So I think it's a little bit surprising problematic woman of the week, but I'm really happy that we're able to crown her and give her the recognition that she deserves. She certainly earned the crown this week. All right. And finally, it is time for the problematic woman Twitter 
question of the week. So last week we asked you all what courage means to you and we got so many good responses. Thank you to everyone who tweeted. Um, I'm going to read Kimberly's tweet. She said, standing up for personal liberty and against the misinformation of the mob. Hashtag problematic women, supporting women in all roles, not hashtag feminism. Strength is found in personal identity and expressed as personal integrity when she is certain of her value. Thanks so much, Kimberly, for I know, it's so good. Thanks, Kimberly, for <laughs> tweeting. So be sure to tweet with that hashtag, Problematic Women, just like Kimberly did for this week's Twitter question. So just like how we talked about uh, with J.K. Rowling, that she was bold and she spoke out and tweeted her views and opinions despite backlash, we want to know from you all, do you ever feel like that you have to censor yourself on social media or maybe in conversations with friends or family because you're concerned about that backlash that you're going to get, about offending people and about being uh, seen as not politically correct. We want to hear your thoughts. Tweet at us using that hashtag, Problematic Woman. I can't wait to hear what everybody has to say, Virginia. It's going to be great. Well, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a fantastic week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.